and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Wednesday 21st December with me, Ian Welsh. As this is the final podcast of 2022, coming up are two of the most popular interviews in terms of downloads from the year. And so coming up are a Q&A session with Nestle's Rob Cameron, Vice President and Global Head of Public Affairs and ESG Engagement, which was recorded at the opening of Innovation Forum's Business Action on Climate Change event in June. And also in June, I caught up with Everland President Josh Tosserson when we were both in Stockholm for the UN Environment Programme's World Environment Day, and in particular for the launch of Everland's Forest Plan, involving rapidly developing new Red Plus forest projects in threatened forest landscapes. That's all to come, as is a new voice for the podcast, Innovation Forum's Katie Ball, who I spoke with this week about the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference coming up in New York City next June. No News Digest this week, that'll return next time. The Innovation Forum team are working hard in developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business climate action on scope 3 emissions. More detail on all of that is available on the Innovation Forum website, where you can also get all the latest information about how to register at launch rate discounts. We're going to be in New York for our first North American Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference on the 21st and 22nd of June next summer. To find out more about the conference agenda and who's going to be involved, I spoke this week with Innovation Forum's Katie Ball. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have a new voice on the podcast. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what the focus of the event in June next year is going to be? The overarching theme of the conference will focus on aligning the industry on what sustainable fashion truly means and how brands can tangibly drive positive change within their organizations. Specific sessions will explore the most pressing topics within the apparel and textile industry, including supply chain transformation, scaling circularity, key social challenges, and the ever-evolving regulatory landscape. We'll look at these topics from a global perspective, but also with a North American lens, particularly on the regulatory panels. So who's the conference aimed at? This conference is for anyone engaged in sustainability within the apparel and textiles industry. Our delegates are typically senior decision makers within their organizations, representing brands, retailers, suppliers, NGOs, policymakers, and lots of others as well. This is the first time we're holding this event in North America. What are the agenda highlights? There are so many interesting topics on this agenda, but one I'm particularly looking forward to is on green hushing versus green washing. I think everyone is familiar with green washing, but a new phenomenon has emerged called green hushing, where brands are reluctant to share their organization's progress and goals on sustainability at the risk of inadvertent backlash. So this session will dive into how brands can maintain authenticity and build trust with consumers when communicating on their sustainability efforts without greenwashing or greenhushing. Another session I'm excited for is the Overcoming Overproduction panel because it's going to really unpack a lot in one session. It will dive into the business model of fashion and how a shift in the model could use data to predict demand, reduce costs and waste, eliminate unnecessary resource consumption, and help brands deliver on their climate goals. I think that's going to be a really interesting one. These are two really interesting sessions for sure. I look forward to them very much. Who's already taking part? Who have we got signed up as panelists? We've got some really fantastic brands participating already, including some senior leaders from Gap, Lululemon, Carhartt, Eileen Fisher, Everlane, Burlington, Tapestry, L.L. Bean, PBH, and NYU's Stern School of Business with others to join. 
fantastic lineup already. And as you say, I'm sure more will be joining us all the time. So, Katie, how can listeners get involved? Registration is now open, so you can head to our events tab and click on the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference USA for more information on how to register. Keep in mind that there are two apparel conferences running, this conference in New York in June and one that my colleague Hannah spoke to you about previously in Amsterdam in April, so just be sure to check which event you're registering for. There is a discount to save $600 on tickets running through this Friday, the 23rd of December, but podcast listeners can get a discount extended to Wednesday, the 28th of December. Try and get your ticket bookings in by then. If you are interested in sponsoring the event, you can get in touch with Anita Thompson, whose information is at the bottom of the event page, or just reach out to anyone at Innovation Forum and we can connect you. So a good time to buy your tickets, $600 discount through to the 23rd of December, but a podcast listeners, you get an extended discount through to the 28th of December using the discount code podcast when you check out on the Innovation Forum website. Katie, I'm looking forward to the event very much. See you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian. To open Innovation Forum's Business Action on Climate Change event in June 2022, I had a Q&A session with Nestle's Rob Cameron. We talked about why companies need to continue to focus on carbon, take immediate action at scale, and the potential benefits from regenerative agriculture. Rob, why don't you start by kicking this off and outlining what Nestle is doing in terms of its net zero strategy? From our point of view, we are well into our journey now on net zero. So to give you a little bit of perspective on it, we came to this in 2018, 2019, launched our net zero roadmap at the end of 2020. Science-based targets aligned and Paris aligned. So the goal is net zero by 2050, 50% reductions by 2030, and a 20% reduction by 2025. That in itself, so far, so good. But for a company like us, what we need to really understand is that by far and away the greater bulk, fully 95% of our in-scope emissions are scope three emissions. The scale of the challenge is enormous when it comes to the need to drive the change through our value chain. Of those scope three emissions, the vast majority are in agriculture and the sourcing of our ingredients. When we looked at this, what we realized very, very quickly was that Getting caught up in a target setting game of, is it 2050, is it 2045, is it 2040, I'll see your 2040 and raise you to 2039, and it's only scopes one and two, we made a very clear decision, that's not a game we're playing. The game we're playing, what we really wanted to do was to focus on action in the here and now, because what the science tells us is that if we don't achieve a 20% reduction by 2025, and 50% by 2030, frankly, it makes 2050 bordering on impossible. And if it's physically possible, it would be unfeasibly expensive for us to achieve it. So our focus was very much on what do we do now? When we looked at it, what became very clear also was that we needed to focus in on agriculture. That's where the emissions are. And there are certain parts of our agricultural supply chain, such as dairy, where they're particularly heavy. So we needed to address that. And then the next step on from that was, okay. so we want to get across what's going on in agriculture. How do we do that? And that's where we came up with an important bet. I would say the biggest bet. And I don't even know it's a bet because I think it's just something that we have to do. This is part of an overall theming that we've got around advancing regenerative food systems at scale. That's what we want to do. Climate sits within that. 
And the way in which we can make it real is through regenerative agriculture. We're investing heavily, 1.2 billion between the launch and 2025. A lot of that money is being spent on working with farmers and supporting farmers. And that sits within this notion, which many people on this call will have heard about, of the just transition, because our perspective is there will be no transition to a low carbon economy without it being a just transition. So that means working very closely with our supply chain partners, especially farmers, with a view to technical assistance, financial support, and paying premiums for regeneratively produced ingredients. That's absolutely crucial to it. So having said all of that, and having said, we're not playing the long-term game of, is it 2050, is it 2039? It's about action now. What I can also tell you since we launched the roadmap is that our emissions have peaked. We've cracked the decoupling of growth of company with growth in emissions. And in fact, actually emissions, absolute reductions down 4 million tons. We think we peaked, we don't know the exact month, but it was sometime in 2021, early 2021, and we're now on a downward trajectory. So that's the sort of net zero roadmap launch, and that's the progress to date in a nutshell. Uh, But there's an awful lot more to say about the regeneration program and around some of the challenges that we face in agriculture, I'm sure. Everybody talks about the transition now. I wonder whether there's a danger of focusing too much on just carbon and forgetting the other things need to be involved in the moves towards net zero. How do you characterise the dangers of focusing exclusively on a carbon lens? I think there's a couple of caveats here straight away. Firstly, let's not kid ourselves. The climate threat is the biggest threat facing humanity. For me, there's no doubt about it. And I think that I can express as both a personal view and a corporate view. The COVID crisis came along. Was it massive? Yes, of course it was. If it wasn't for the COVID crisis, we'd probably be sitting in a conference room somewhere or other in the world and be having this conversation face to face. So it's clearly changed the way things are. The conflict, and let's not call it a conflict, let's call it what it is, the invasion in Ukraine is a massive geopolitical problem. But like all wars, it will come to an end in some form or other. But climate, I think, is the crisis that is really brewing quite violently now. So I think the caveat, the answer a little bit, that's the first thing to say. Climate is an incredibly challenging threat to our civilization. Having said that, a little bit of caution is needed. And I think the way the question was originally framed, it may even be in the title of the session, is it too narrow a business strategy? In one sense, if you look at it through the lens of only a business strategy, the answer is yes, because history shows us that there are plenty of chief executives and companies that have been outstanding in addressing sustainability issues, but have not stood the test of time when it comes to delivering on the other things that matter. Focus on consumers, making sure that you're delivering the products and services that your customers want, making sure you keep the numbers ticking along. Let's be clear, those are really important as well. Not instead of, but as well. That's got to be delivered. And then thinking about the climate agenda, one of the things that strikes me when I look at our value chain around the world is that there are certain parts of the world where you want to have a conversation about climate change and people will turn around and say, well, that's all very well. But what I really want to talk about is water scarcity. There's a real disconnect for some people around the topics that matter most to them, wherever they may be in the world. I think another facet of this, and it goes back to this theme of a just transition, there's no question in my mind that problems like deforestation, and if you look at deforestation and the link with climate change, it's a very strong link there. Deforestation drives climate change, climate change drives deforestation. And what else is going on in there? Well, often there's problems of inequality, problems of livelihoods. So I think you've got to look at it through the lens of people and how we make sure we're working with people 
to support them in their aspirations at the same time as attempting to do the physical job of addressing climate. So that's why there's a heap of things we've done since we launched the Climate Roadmap. For example, we've launched a new human rights roadmap. We believe that that is an integral part of our journey to net zero. We've launched something in COCO called the Income Accelerator. It too, its focus is on livelihoods and climate and other social concerns. So it's this idea, like climate is the most important issue. I think it's the apex issue. But as well as only addressing climate, I think there is room, what I like to call climate and. So climate and biodiversity, climate and livelihoods, climate and water stress. Climate sits within a system. And I think we need to take an and approach to seeing the systemic connections. We talk a lot about systems change. It's very difficult to get your arms around it. But frankly, nothing shows a system more starkly than when it's under stress and you see where the disconnects are and where the real heat points are. And I think that's what we're experiencing at the moment. I totally agree that deforestation is a challenge where you do link the human rights elements and the climate, because as you said, it's all about livelihoods a lot of the time around deforestation. The people that live in the forest communities need to be able to value the trees remaining rather than being the forest being destroyed. And that's the real challenge. Ever since the New York Declaration and all the way through, all the talk about ending deforestation, very well intended, very well meant. We are now 97% of the way there on our deforestation target. I mean, to all intents and purposes, we are there on deforestation. We're a little bit late. Why? Because we deliberately held back because we didn't want to disadvantage parts of our supply chain that we didn't know enough about. And the reason we didn't know enough about them was because they're the smaller producers. So we wanted to make sure that we didn't disadvantage any livelihoods by pressing forward to hit the 2020 deadline, but do so in a way that caused problems for others. Since then, we've launched the Forest Positive Initiative. Deforestation is what we're against, but what are we for? And so that's why Forest Positive, I think, is so important because it comes at forests through a number of different lenses, particularly around rights, human rights, right to a decent livelihood and land rights. And what's more, it goes beyond the farm. It's the farm and the landscape. And I think there's a lot of learning about landscape assessments in what we're doing on forests that can actually be transferred across to what we're doing in regenerative agriculture. A landscape's approach is, I think, a really valuable way of thinking. What about then when you've been developing your roadmap and you're thinking about your strategy? What have been some unintended consequences of your approach? What have been the sort of things that you hadn't thought of that have come to bite you perhaps as you've been going? I think there's a couple of things that we're learning as we go along, of course. I mean, there's been a couple of missteps. I don't want to labour them, but there's been a few missteps on our side around, did we plant the right trees in the right places and with the right involvement? So that kind of nature-based solutions thing of being a little bit project-oriented, perhaps rather than system-wide oriented, that was a lesson very, very quickly learned. When I think more broadly about unintended consequences, perhaps the unintended consequences of thinking go a little bit beyond our own borders. I've been thinking a lot about some of the challenges that the world faces in how we think about climate change and how, particularly in this question of land use, you know, for us as an agriculture and land-based company, it is absolutely an opportunity as well as a necessity for us to think about the role of nature-based solutions and agricultural practices. So for that, we're looking at both reductions, but we're also looking at removals, removals in the value chain. I'm concerned around certain actors who are focused on only scope one and two emissions, 
and an awful lot of it being dealt with through offsets on a, on a carbon market. We know full well that there are parts of the world now that are suffering a little bit where investments in forests for carbon offsets are being made without really full scrutiny of the local population, land that's given over to forest cultivation that might not be in the right place in the right way for trading on carbon markets. Many of us would agree that's not necessarily the way we want to go. But for some people, it seems insetting is still an obstacle. You know, I really struggle with that because for us as an agricultural based company, that's where we have the most impacts, where we have the most opportunity as well as a necessity. There's a sort of a, can we lift our horizons up and start to be a bit more thoughtful about where criticism goes? And I'll give you another example, which I was reading about only over the weekend. If you think about the hard to abate sectors, they need a huge amount of capital to transition to low carbon. I mean, just think about green hydrogen and the amount of money that's going to be involved in moving hard to abate sectors to adopting hydrogen. If you're in steel or cement, for instance, if I'm a bank and I'm thinking, well, I'd like to support that transition and I start lending to companies that are in those spaces, I've just suddenly taken on a whole load of carbon emissions on my lending book. And I know an awful lot of newspapers and activists that would give me a really hard time for doing that. Now, actually, what we want is we want banks and investors to be running towards those sorts of opportunities and needs to actually finance the transition. Whereas instead, what I think is happening, that there are huge obstacles to lenders and investors getting involved in that space. So how do we get across that paradox? You're being hammered for putting too much carbon on your lending book because that's the present state, whereas in fact, what you're looking to do is to drive change in the market. So I think there's a whole heap of, of unintended consequences that are out there at the moment. But for me, we have to open our eyes and think, What's the smartest thing we can do that's going to drive change most quickly? A similar point was made to an event we had earlier in the year by someone in the palm oil sector who said that the due diligence legislation that's coming up in Europe and elsewhere may well have the unintended consequence of driving businesses away from higher risk sourcing growing countries, growing communities, where in fact, they are the sort of businesses that should be involved in those countries and those growing areas to in fact make the transition. And if they leave, then the transition won't happen. There certainly are always consequences of all these things that haven't been thought through entirely. Let me turn to some questions. Question about the use of science-based targets. Now, our questioner asks um, that it is said that uh, science-based targets are easier when you're a big company like Nestle. What advice do you have for companies in emerging economies, smaller companies, approaching the use of science-based targets? I think there's a couple of things there. Firstly, to some extent, there's a degree of truth that getting your head around science-based targets needs a certain amount of resource. Having said that, you can do it two ways. One is crack on, find the quick wins. That doesn't take too much imagination. I would strongly suggest, leaving aside the targeting piece, that any actions are taken at the same time you're doing some kind of baseline assessment, because knowing where you are, even if you're not using science-based targets for your aspirations in the future, knowing where you are on a baseline assessment, that's something which I think is perfectly possible and indeed an absolute for everybody to do. Identify where the quick wins are and get on with those because as Stockholm was pointing out last week, we don't have time. The faster you can get a baseline assessment done and the faster you can get on with taking action, spending five years studying what science-based targets may or may not mean for you and your value chain is probably not a good use of time right now. Another question, uh, and it's talking about the amount of investment that you're putting into regenerative agriculture. Our questioner, Jan, suggested it was uh, 1.2 billion euros between 20 and 2025. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it's Swiss francs, uh, actually, to be Swiss precise. Francs, but yes. How can you be satisfied that that's enough, is the gist of the question. Yeah. You've given Nestle a massive company, obviously big operating profits. Is that enough? 
And it's a really good question. And personally speaking, uh, and I use the number because we've gone on public record with it, is it enough? We'll find out. What we know at the moment is that there are a number of, I mentioned already, there's a number of things that farmers need. They need technical support. We've got 2,000 agronomists around the world and we buy directly from about 600,000 farmers, direct from 600,000 farmers. So we're really very close to the farmer. We know that they need premiums for regeneratively produced ingredients, so we're prepared to pay them. That's where some of that money is going. Some of that money is also going in terms of low-cost loans, and that's happening all around the world. And if we get to a point where we feel like, well, we've made good progress, but we need more, then there will be more because this is a target that we absolutely cannot afford to miss. I'm not saying that we're going to open up a bottomless pit, but at the same time, we made the initial commitment and said, right, that's where we start from. We can see an investment horizon there and we'll build on it from there. I think there's an awful lot of things that we can and should do outside of the investment of the money, though. And I particularly want to emphasize the technical support, bearing in mind that for some farmers, very often most farmers, a transition to regenerative agriculture in the short term can affect yields. And farmers need to see that they're going to get a return on their investment over time. Let's turn to another question. You've talked a lot about a number of initiatives and partnerships. Can you say just a little bit about the thinking behind those? What constitutes a good partnership when you're working to meet these goals? The focus in the company is about action and delivery. Whereas we used to have the luxury, I think, in the past where partnerships and collaborations that were there as a good thing, well, of course, you do them because they're a good thing. Now what we're interested in are partners that can help us actually drive the changes that we need. Example, we work very closely with IDH and KIT on delivering our cocoa income accelerator, which has got a lot of agricultural practices built into it. Those sorts of partners at an international global level are partners that can help us to get things done. And that's the key for us. Meta partnerships are kind of nice to do's. Yeah, they're nice to do. But for us, it's we tend to even not want to talk too much about the collaboration word. We tend to want to talk about collective action. That's the key. It all seems to come back to we've got to do everything now. So everything yep. is going to be focused on. The progress requires immediate action. Something's yep. going to be hard. You know, Get the easy wins in because at least then your progress is in the here and now. There are a few questions about insetting coming through. What is making it hard? And secondly, how do you credibly report on insetting? What are the kind of keys to get that, getting that bit right? It's not hard for us to do in a technical sense. It's totally easy for us to do. Some of the criticisms and debates that have been levelled at us have been perhaps a little bit superficial and maybe we're a bit too sensitive about it. But there have been one or two people that seem to have inferred that firstly, our reductions are not in line with our growth and that's not the case. And secondly, that somehow or other insetting is gaming the system. And we would disagree with both those points. When it comes to actually insetting itself, let's give an example of dairy and silvopasture, planting trees in places where cows are grazing is a perfectly good example of tree planting within your value chain, as opposed to putting up pine forests in some part of the world that doesn't want them. So for us, that's a perfectly good example of a removal within the value chain. We actually haven't made much of it, but we've got a substantial amount of removals that we can see. We're not booking them, but we can see them because of the investments that we've already made in such initiatives as silvopasture. So, you know, in terms of technically doing it, it's not that difficult. It's more the getting into the philosophical debate about whether it's allowable or not. When for us, as an agricultural firm, it's not like we can shift everything over to renewable energy. We can do the entire company on renewable energy, right? It won't make much more difference than that on our carbon footprint overall. And reporting on it, the credible reporting part? Yeah, measurement. So we've got a very, very detailed... Uh, 
I confess I, I really don't like the thing because it's called it's called GPS, Greenhouse Gas Performance System. Uh, but basically, it's a very, very, very in-depth measurement tool that we've built because we couldn't get something that was as detailed as we need, given the complexities that you've hinted at. We've built our own. That's absolutely crucial to this. And one thing that's about scope three, of course, is that a lot of people will talk about the probability of double counting. And there is a possibility of that for sure, but it's a probability, who knows? The point is, though, that we need to be able to measure on farm exactly the impacts that we're having. So that's why we're investing so heavily in that. We want to be able to demonstrate it. Apart from agriculture, what else are you doing on other parts of the business to get to net zero? So there's a a number of things. I mentioned renewable electricity wouldn't make that much difference. Well, even if it's only a small amount of difference, it's still a difference. So by 2025, all factories over to renewable electricity on transportation, issues around cargo freight. There's a lot of work going on there around decarbonizing the ocean freight. I also think it's worth mentioning plastics and packaging. We made significant announcements prior to our carbon net zero roadmap around reducing virgin plastics by a third by 2025 and all of our packaging being recyclable or renewable by the same period. So all to say that there's all of these other areas, whether it's energy use and manufacturing, whether it's shipping or whether it's packaging, we're at work across the whole waterfront. Are there any other things we should be focusing on particularly over the next few days? The thing is that this audience is the choir already, right? I mean, there isn't likely to be many people coming to this event that hasn't already got a sense that this is what we should be doing. So I think it's about pace. How do we move further, faster? Bearing in mind that some of the obstacles we see, I saw the other day, only one in five Fortune 500 companies have got scope three in their emissions targets. That huge amount of businesses that have not embraced this yet is an obstacle. So those of us that have, we need to be thinking about how we work together to go further, faster. So action to go further, faster, to accelerate delivery would be a key theme, I would think. And another thing we haven't talked about is the impact of the conflict and how we avoid back to unintended consequences, that being a break on progress. And if possible, whether we can use it as an accelerant to progress. Rob, thank you very much indeed. It's been a fascinating half an hour. Thank you to everyone for your questions. Some really, really good questions. I'm sorry we didn't be able to get all of them. I hope we covered certainly the themes that were emerging. But for now, thank you very much for your attention and particularly to Rob Cameron, my thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ian, and uh, great conference, everybody. Also in June, I met with Josh Tosserson, president of Everland, and we discussed Everland's new plan to tackle deforestation at scale through rapidly developing new Red Plus forest projects and threatened landscapes around the world, and accessing the unprecedented levels of climate finance via the voluntary carbon markets. So we're here in Stockholm. We're uh, been having some events around the UN Environment Programme's World Environment Day for 2022, and you've just launched Everland's forest plan. What is this plan and what's his ambition? The forest plan, what is it? It is the response of our organization to the commitment that has been made by over 140 of the world's leaders at the COP26 to end deforestation by 2030. That itself is a recognition of the fact that we are going to be unable to achieve the ambition set forth in the Paris Climate Accords without ending deforestation within that same time period. It's a strong scientific consensus. The only problem is that there's not a clear plan to achieve this. And so what the forest plan aims to do is to chart a roadmap for how we can end deforestation. And it charts out the role of our organization in, in making a meaningful contribution to that. So what's the strategy then? 
The forest plan is based on a recognition that there's a real bright spot here in the fight to end deforestation. It starts with the recognition that forest loss is driven by economics, by the needs of hundreds of millions of people living in and around the forests of the world to achieve basic needs and chart a path to prosperity. Absent any alternatives, the value of the forest for these people is going to be cut down and used for subsistence agriculture or logging, commodity crops, and so forth. There's a mechanism, and it's one that's been working for well over a decade now, and it's based on the United Nations reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, Red Plus. It's a voluntary market expression of that, project-based, market-based, Red Plus. Red Plus programs, community-centered, wildlife-centric Red programs have been generating hundreds of millions of tons of emissions reductions over this period of time, over the decade, while generating transformative benefits to communities all over the world. And so our plan really takes as its point of departure the proven successes of this model at reducing deforestation by transforming the economic relationship and the social relationship between people and forests and scaling that model to its fullest expression. So what exactly defines or what is a Red Plus project? Red Plus projects are initiatives that are undertaken in partnership between different configurations of specialized project developers like large, well-known international NGOs and conservation enterprises, in partnership with local communities living in landscapes, and in partnership with governments, both at regional, local, and national level. And these consortia decide together to begin a multi-decadal initiative to end deforestation in that landscape. That's the beginning part of a RED project. And together they collaborate to design and implement activities in the landscape that address the drivers of deforestation within that landscape and arrange for activities along with local communities that are aimed at generating basic needs and prosperity for those communities in a manner that is consistent with their own aspirations. And through those programs of work, deforestation is reduced against the baseline. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we get further into this conversation. And as those projects are successful at reducing deforestation against their baseline, they can sell the verified emissions reductions that are generated to companies that are seeking to undertake the highest impact actions that they can for the benefit of the climate and biodiversity. And through those resources, they're able to finance over a long-term basis their agendas of work. What's the potential scalability of uh, Red Plus then? We believe Red Plus can scale ultimately to protect an area of forest that's 17% or even more of what is projected to be the forest loss in some of the most important countries around the world um, for forests such as Brazil, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Indonesia, Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, and so forth. So. We believe that the project-based Red Plus modality can make a very meaningful contribution to ending deforestation in these most highly threatened landscapes around the world. So if Red Plus can prevent 17% of forest loss, what about the other 83%? Yeah, it's the glass 17% full or 83% empty. 
And it's really the question of the relationship between Red Plus and other project-based Red Plus and other modes of intervention. We believe, and the Forest Plan sort of expresses this belief, that jurisdictional programs, particularly national scale programs, are going to be necessary if we're going to tackle deforestation at full scale. And we believe that those programs have yet to really demonstrate yet their effectiveness, whereas project-based RED has shown itself to be quite effective. And so we believe that the path to achieving that kind of scale, Ian, is through an integration or synthesis of jurisdictional scale programs that are overseen by countries and project-based expressions that really land interventions in the landscapes where forest loss is actually happening. Who all needs to be on board to achieve this then? You need the governments of forest nations to commit to putting forward what we call jurisdictional nested programs. This means Red Plus programs that are operated through government policy at a national level, which also enable projects of the sort that I've mentioned earlier to take place within the framework, the accounting framework, the administrative framework policy framework of those national programs. And there's a number of countries that have begun to do this, both at national and at provincial level. Democratic Republic of Congo, Colombia, Cambodia are just some of the leaders who have kind of gone out ahead um, to begin developing these jurisdictional nested programs. So government's a really, really essential piece of this. Project-based Red Plus has attracted some criticisms. Let's address some of those now. The issue of leakage where deforestation just moves outside a project boundary, how can that be addressed? I think one of the ways that this is addressed is, again, going back to the point of jurisdictional nested programs. When you contain your overall carbon accounting at the scale of the jurisdiction of the nation, then the possibility of leakage at a project level is more or less eliminated. I will say, on the other hand, though, Ian, and it's important really to point out, is that high quality standards that govern voluntary market Red Plus currently, such as the verified carbon standard of, of Veras, they address leakage quite clearly in the standard. Leakage actually is monitored in defined leakage belts, and any emissions that take place within the leakage belt are, are counted against the net emissions reductions that are generated by a project. Leakage is already explicitly addressed quantitatively within the framework of existing standards. So it's to recognize the possibility that it takes place on the one hand and also to acknowledge that it is addressed in a direct way already. There's another aspect of leakage that I think isn't talked about, which is just worth pointing out, which is that conservation benefits the benefits of improved livelihoods um, and of changing relationships between people and forests, there's a positive leakage that can happen within landscapes as well. And I think it's just worth pointing that out because we've seen some examples of that in some of the projects where we work in. Anyway, you asked a question about the criticism and this is how they're addressed both within the framework of the existing standards and in the framework of new program designs, such as the nested jurisdictional programs that I mentioned. So baselines, we talked about them already, clearly getting them right is very important. How are baselines best established? This is another question that I think actually merits its own special conversation because of its importance. 
And I think also because of the strength of, I dare say, emotion behind it, as opposed to the strength of the data that's actually behind, especially the critique. So on the subject of baselines, a baseline is a counterfactual scenario. So it's an expression of, by definition, what's not going to happen in the area that you're creating the baseline scenario for. Why is it not going to happen? Is because you're having the project intervention. The ability to assess a good baseline, good being defined as the correspondence of the baseline to reality, is something that from a methodological standpoint is tricky to actually assess. It's my own belief personally that there is not necessarily a priori a better or a worse way to create a baseline, at least not on the basis of the definition of good that I've mentioned. What is happening now as it relates to baselines is a movement to create baselines no longer in the future on the basis of a scenario of what most likely would be taking place without the project. And these are bottom-up scenarios that are constructed by an understanding of the dynamics and the landscape. Is this an area that is receiving a lot of in-migration from people who want to grow coffee um, because it's favorable, because this is an area of forest that's a little bit upslope, right? And so you have in-migration. It's an example of the kind of scenario from observed situations on the ground that might lead to the creation of a baseline, a quantitative baseline projection through modeling. The way things are going now, and it's in line with the movement to jurisdictional programs and nested programs, is to create baselines in the following way by looking at the trends of forest loss in the wider landscape, so at, say, at the level of the country, and then to create risk maps, maps that kind of show you where the hotspots of deforestation have been, and to assess, basically to look at what you think are the highest risk areas for future deforestation. And so what they'll then do is allocate the national projected forest loss proportionally to the hotspot areas where projected future deforestation is thought to be most likely to happen based on past trends. So it's just a different way to approach it. And it has different design objectives than a bottom-up scenario-driven baseline. It's actually unclear currently what is, quote, better. But the latter approach lends itself to integration within jurisdictional nested programs. And that is the direction in which baseline setting is going to be going in the future for, for voluntary programs. How can emissions reductions credits purchased by companies from a project basis best be nested into national policies and targets to avoid something else? It's a, thrown sometimes at a project-based um, red plus in terms of double counting of the emission reductions. How can that be avoided? Well, first of all, there's no possibility of the double counting of a voluntary credit into the UN FCCC system. It's not possible to do it. It can't be done. They're completely different accounting systems. So there's never going to be a double counting of an emission reduction. It's not going to happen. To the first part of your question, however, in nested programs, such as the ones that are being developed in Cambodia and in other places, those programs will enable the emissions reductions that are being generated at a project level to qualify either for voluntary market credits or for compliance credits should those compliance markets actually come into being under Article 6. And that gives the governments of forest nations the flexibility 
to draw on the compliance markets, government to government, or on the private market for whatever they think is going to be the best value that they can obtain for their successful efforts to reduce emissions. That is really the great value of these programs for governments. It gives them flexibility to go in whatever direction works the best for them to monetize the benefits of the ecosystem services that they are preserving for the benefit of humanity. And that was part of the changes or the developments that came out of COP26, the so-called Article 6, where the definitions and how the carbon markets were going to work in the future were finally agreed. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of details still to come. So we're indicatively, the blueprint is there, but there's a lot of work still ahead. For those who, who are kind of critical of the voluntary carbon markets at this time, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that the goal of the world is to end deforestation within this decade. And why? It's because you have no chance of achieving the climate stabilization targets set forth in the Paris Accords without doing so, without eliminating deforestation. And so, you know, the, the, the track record of public sector programs like this moving at this kind of speed, it's not there. On the other hand, what is the case is that the markets have recognized this need to end deforestation as an imperative for humanity, and they're putting the financial resources behind programs of work, Voluntary Red Plus, to actually achieve that. While these kinds of programmatic details are worked out in conference rooms in the North, real money is flowing to communities to actually end deforestation in the global South now. And it's our own view that this is work that needs to be accelerated not hindered. And that's the value of the voluntary markets today. They are responding at the scale and with the speed that's necessary to actually tackle the problem. Voluntary carbon markets are booming and there's now an unprecedented level of potential carbon finance available to fund Red Plus projects. What's the best way to take advantage of this fantastic opportunity? <laughs> well, our forest plan, when you reduce it to its essence, Develop more projects with the best consortia of developers, communities, and governments, and to engage more buyers of verified emissions reductions to support those projects. It's a pretty simple formula. Develop great projects, support the great projects in the marketplace. That's it. We have proven developers. We have proven projects. We have a path to growth that is based on a foundation of science-based standards and repeated third-party audits by independent auditors. So build on that. Do more of it. It's really simple. I like it. Do more of this better. Yeah, that, well, that is exactly a simple approach, but it's a one that can work. Okay, what will constitute success then over the coming years? What are the milestones are you, you're going to be looking for? Again, back to simplicity, at least for us in the forest plan, we've got a time-bound action plan. And our goal is to successfully facilitate the development of 75 new Red Plus projects with our current developer partners and new ones that we'll bring on board over time in partnership with us. We've got a growth plan to get to 75 projects by 2030. And you know, the program's already been launched with a path-breaking $2 billion commitment, financing commitment from Hartree Partners to provide the financing for a new portfolio of over 20 new projects to be led by premier Red Plus project developer in the world, Wildlife Works. So we're already starting with tremendous momentum to this. So we've got transparent reporting in the forest plan on our milestones and our key performance indicators not just on the growth at the level of the number of projects but also the achievements that they're making 
for the communities, for the impacts that they're generating. So we're going to be monitoring them as we do with all of our current projects, how they're doing with respect to delivering health and well-being to local communities through water and sanitation and food security, um, women's empowerment, economic development, education, forest governments, land tenure rights, community benefit sharing, all of these things are transparently monitored and reported on. And we have targets that we set forth for each one of these areas in the forest plan. So that's what success is going to look like and keep checking in with us each year because we're going to be providing annual reports and issuing them out for engagement with our stakeholders. Well, Josh, it's certainly highly ambitious. Obviously, there are lots of things that have to fall into place, but ambition is required if deforestation is to be halted. I look forward to finding out more about your success over the coming years. But for now, Josh Sosten, President of Everland, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And look out for a new piece where I've highlighted some other popular podcast interviews from the year. And don't forget to register now for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event in New York on the 21st and 22nd of June to take advantage of a $600 discount on passes. The discount is extended for podcast listeners to Wednesday 28th December. Just type podcast into the discount code when you're checking out. But that's it for now and indeed for 2022. If you're celebrating it, I wish you a Merry Christmas and very best wishes from all the Innovation Forum team for a prosperous 2023. We'll be back in January and until then, I've been Ian Welsh and goodbye.